Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 67 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today I'm joined by Clint Patterson. Now, before we start today's show, I wanted to tell you about something that is so exciting. I am running the world's first SIBO retreat next year in 2019. I'm absolutely thrilled about it. I have been asked by so many people to put on a SIBO retreat, a place we can be pampered, fed delicious SIBO food and feel like we're just normal everyday people rather than people with rather annoying guts. And so I'm thrilled to be bringing this to you. It's going to be at least four days of complete pampering. There'll be amazing SIBO workshops, delicious SIBO-friendly meals. Hey, you know I love my SIBO meals, guys. We'll be doing yoga, meditation. There'll be loads of sunshine, swimming and fun. Plus, you'll get to meet other amazing SIBO people just like you and me. I'm going to be holding the retreat with Kirsten Swales. She's a naturopath, a nutritionist and a medical herbalist. And she's also experienced IBS, SIBO and adrenal fatigue. Kirsten and I are both passionate about helping our fellow SIBOers live well with this condition. So who better to run the world's first SIBO retreat than two women who have lived it themselves? If you've dreamed of travelling with SIBO but felt like it was completely off limits, this is your opportunity to head to beautiful Bali and have a wonderful time with us. To make sure the event is everything that you want it to be, we've got a super short survey that we'd love you to fill out so you can let us know if you're interested in the SIBO retreat. And I promise there's no requirement to commit at this stage. We're just gathering information on who's interested and so that we can make sure this is the perfect SIBO retreat for you. To fill out this super short survey and to learn more about the world's first SIBO retreat, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO retreat. On today's show, I'm joined by Clint Patterson. He's an Australian-born comedian who has performed in 14 countries and six national Australian TV shows. His career rise was abruptly halted in 2006 when he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and within two years could barely walk with crippling pain covering 80% of his body. After conventional treatments failed him, Clint turned his health 
and his entire life around with a unique plant-based diet and yoga combination to become pain-free and drug-free. Clint has helped hundreds of thousands of inflammatory arthritis sufferers reduce their symptoms via his website, TEDx talk, podcast, keynote presentations and social media platforms. The greatest reward for Clint is spending each day with his two young girls, a direct outcome of his successful mission to become drug-free and return to full health. If you would like to get access to the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash RA for rheumatoid arthritis. And if you'd like to get the full transcription from today's episode or any episode in season two of the Healthy Gut podcast, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash RA and sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut podcast. It's absolutely free to do so. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Clint Patterson. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast and today I'm joined by Clint Patterson. He's an Australian-born comedian and has performed in 14 countries and six national Australian TV shows. His career rise was abruptly halted in 2006 when he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and within two years could barely walk with pain crippling 80% of his body. After conventional treatments had failed him, Clint turned his health and his entire life around with a unique plant-based diet and yoga combination to become pain-free and drug-free. Clint has helped hundreds of thousands of inflammatory arthritis sufferers reduce their symptoms via his website, TEDx Talk, podcast, keynote presentations, and social media platforms. The greatest reward for Clint is spending each day with his two young girls, a direct outcome of his successful mission to become drug-free and return to full health. And today, Clint and I are going to be talking about that journey back to health, his experience with rheumatoid arthritis, and also his nutrition principles. I'm very interested in his plant-based diet approach and his key strategies that he he uses for himself and also with the clients that he works with. So Clint, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Oh, how exciting this is. Thanks so much for having a show like this for listeners to be able to tune in for free and get such uh, great valuable information to be able to improve their health. So well done. Oh, thanks, Clint. And it's really, it's really interesting. Um, you know, people like you and I who have this personal experience of overcoming chronic illness, um, it really drives you to help others once you start to feel better for yourself because you think, I don't want another person to feel as sick as I did. And if I can change, other people can change. And that's what's driven me to to do the Healthy Gut podcast. But I'd love for you to start off by just sharing your story in terms of life before and then when you realized that perhaps things were going slightly slightly sideways and, and, and then obviously getting that rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis and, and explaining to people that might not know what rheumatoid arthritis actually is. Well, I certainly didn't. When it hit me, I was 31 years old. I'm now 42. So 11 years ago, I just turned 31 actually um, and uh, had just broken up with a girlfriend and had torn my anterior cruciate ligament 
playing touch football all in the same week. So it was a terrible week. I don't know what kind of, uh, you know, what my star sign said that week or what my karmic energy was, but it was certainly uh, coming at me full force. Um, I was otherwise a fit person. I didn't know what the disease was. There's no family history of it. I'd never even heard of it. So I was in my own little bubble trying to be successful doing my passion of stand-up comedy, which I'd been at by that point, by about six years. I started when I was about 25. I was having success. I was getting on a couple of smaller TV shows uh, uh, and, uh, you know, traveling interstate. In fact, I was interstate for gigs when I actually uh, woke up with sore feet. And I woke up with sore feet and it was it's a weird sensation. It's not like a pain I had ever experienced before. It's not quite like you've got a burr in your foot or a thorn, and it's not quite like you've kind of bruised something. It's it's very a, a unique and and unnatural feeling of pain. Um, and so, in my feet, uh, at first, progressed into my fingers in the subsequent weeks, and then started to uh, really have it in the left knee, which, of course, was the one that uh, had taken the damage from the anterior cruciate ligament uh, tear playing the football. And so, the knee swelled up, uh, my fingers were swollen, and uh, my feet continued to hurt. And the um, general practitioner ran some blood tests and called me back in not long afterwards and in a very grave tone sat me down and 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 said, I'm afraid you've got something called rheumatoid arthritis and here are the blood tests. He, he evidenced that with uh, uh, elevated rheumatoid factor and another one called uh, uh, anti-CCP uh, markers and he showed me my uh, C-reactive protein and my uh, said rate, both inflammation markers. And so I had the uh, the quintessential diagnosis of inflammation in symmetric joints on both sides of the body, except for the knee, of course, because that one being injury driven um, and with the blood markers. And so he was very convinced and he fast tracked me to see the rheumatologist. And the rheumatologist the fast track was two months. And, uh, you know, you think that when you got something that's so serious that you'd be able to access professional specialized healthcare quickly. But it turns out that throughout the world, since helping others with this now for as long as I actually was in debilitating pain uh, over the last five or six years or so uh, helping others, it turns out that around the world, it seems that it takes some time to be able to see these specialists. So it was when I saw the specialist that he explained to me what it actually was. For those people who don't know about rheumatoid arthritis, um, what it is, it's an autoimmune disease that's similar to um, its function as something like multiple sclerosis. So instead of the body attacking the nerve endings, the body attacks a different part of the tissue. In this case, it attacks the synovial tissue and the ligaments, tendons, and cartilage inside the bones. And so the body takes a gun and fires it at itself in an autoimmune process. And in this case, the target is the joints. And uh, we'll go into throughout the rest of this discussion as to what's going on and, and why are we talking about this on the Healthy Gut Podcast and what does the gut have to do with rheumatoid arthritis? Um, to go back a little further before my diagnosis um, in terms of what I ate, my lifestyle, and my fitness levels. Um, I actually grew up on a farm out in the middle of New South Wales. And for your international li listeners, they would call it the outback. I was out past the Blue Mountains uh, from Sydney. You travel a couple of hours over the Blue Mountains and keep going another three or four hours. You'll go past Dubbo and, and hit 
semi desert terrain and grew up on a farm there um, and lived next door to my grandfather. And between us, we had uh, two and a half thousand acres with sheep and cattle and wheat and oats. And so growing up in that environment, my daily fare was mostly, uh, you know, bacon, eggs for breakfast and steak for lunch, chops for dinner. Uh, Maybe from time to time we'd have pork, which I hated, but the predominant food was meat, meat, meat and vegetables. So just a meat and vegetable upbringing. Um, And then throughout my um, university years where I studied laser physics, optoelectronics, um, I would binge. Um, We had, um, you know, exams due, uh, sorry, exams coming up. We would have, um, you know, deadlines with my assignments and so on. And so I would be uh, having late night meals sometimes uh, and uh, just eating on the run a lot to uh, do well at my university, which I was successful at. But I always found myself or thought of myself as very robust with what I could eat because I've always been very thin. I've never had a big frame. My dad's slim and I, you know, inherited his frame. And so I'm six foot one, but I've never uh, really gone beyond about 80 kilograms, which I don't look skinny, but I'm not a big guy. And so I always wanted to try and gain weight. So that was an emphasis for me is trying to go to the gym, eat lots of meat protein um, and try and uh, try and put on weight, which was one of my dietary um, dietary influences. And a big mistake and where my health started to go downhill and it wasn't obvious to me how bad this big mistake was at the time. But throughout my teenage years, I took antibiotics for acne. I had quite uh, obvious acne on my cheeks and forehead from about the age of 14, right up until you know I took the antibiotics, frankly, which was about a year and a half later because it was really bothering me and none of the over-the-counter sort of creams and so on was doing anything. So I took antibiotics for five consecutive years from the age of 15 through to 20. And I now upon reflection, I almost like, you know, almost cry. It's like, don't do that if I could wind back the clock because I never really recovered. My digestive system never recovered from that set of atomic bombs that I dropped on my healthy civilians, my gut bacteria. And uh, I suffered from digestive problems after that. I had, you know, bad gas from the meals that I would consume, Um, sort of uh, I would get some acid reflux type symptoms. Um, I would find um, indigestion to be normal. So, you know, I just discomfort in the the stomach and and intestines, Uh, you know, it just felt normal for many years. And so I started seeing naturopaths before I got rheumatoid who were prescribing various approaches uh, and um, just general feeling of fatigue and, and so on. And then it, it, uh, it peaked or culminated to the rheumatoid arthritis, I believe, that I never really recovered from my um, elong- like a long dose of antibiotics uh, without doing anything to try and restore the healthy gut flora and then having a university lifestyle um, and then a, a, in my 20s suffering from a digestive uh, imbalance and then eventually got rheumatoid arthritis. So that's, that's sort of the summary of how it evolved. 
Mm, and I I know when I was uh, getting ready for our um, discussion today and, uh, you know, I, I saw that of your health history and I was like, oh, gosh, that's the same as me. I spent years on antibiotics for my acne as a teenager. I got acne at the age of 11 when I hit puberty and it culminated in me going on to Roaccutan when I was 15 and I took that for about nine months. So it was literally just a a nuclear attack occurring in my digestive system every single day, every single month for several years and it's no wonder I ended up with autoimmune conditions, gut issues because I just bombed the crap out of my poor little microbiota. Absolutely. As did you, without us even realising what we were doing. Do you know that when I now um, do a fairly informal survey of clients, um, it comes up so often. So often people say in their descriptions when they join our support group, they say, um, I, uh, you know, I took antibiotics for a long period of time because of X, X and X. And then it wasn't long afterwards that I developed symptoms. So for the rheumatoid arthritis, I see it as the most common cause in terms of people's, you know, gut feeling, if you want to say. Um, it certainly shows up all the time in people's case histories. Uh, and also people tend to develop it a lot after having childbirth. There's another time that it comes up and shows up a lot in people's uh, re- recollection of their story. Mm, it's really interesting. So talk us through, so you got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. You'd never heard of it before. You're like, oh, my gosh, what have I ended up with? Then what happened? What was so, next for you? Yeah, I didn't think it was as bad as it was. I did not think that anything could be like I always feel that people exaggerate things and that doctors are meant to show, you know, furrowed brows and concern and to send you off to specialists and to basically treat every case as being as serious as possible when many are not. And that was my sort of pre-frame going into doctors. And so when I went to the rheumatologist, um, the rheumatologist said, well, what we normally do is we like to treat the disease as quickly as possible and as hard as possible so as to get it under control. And so he said, we've got lots of drugs here. We've got things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are just over-the-counter painkillers, of which I'd never taken. Um, And then he says, we've got disease-modifying anti-rheumatic agents like methotrexate, sulfasalazine, Areva, and these drugs. And then he said, and then if they don't work or if they lose their effectiveness, then we can move you on to this new range of drugs called biologic drugs, things like Humira and Enbrel and Remicade, which were just sort of taking off when I first got diagnosed. But I, of course, tuned out a lot of this because I'm just thinking, whatever, I'm not going to be taking this stuff. Like he's kidding himself. Um, And so I said, have you ever had a client who, uh, or a patient who, you know, has, you know, basically not taken the drugs and has never needed to and has been perfectly well? And he said, no. Now, the guy is like head of rheumatology of, I think, Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, one of the leading, you know, um, medical institutes and highly regarded, one of the best, right? And so I'm like, oh, okay. And he said, well, why don't we just start you on methotrexate? He said, 
it's very toxic. So you won't be able to have any kind of plans towards planning a family. And he said it will cause great fatigue. So, you, you know, you just want to watch like the amount of exertion that you do. Um, and he said, and it can be very deleterious to the liver. So we'll need you to measure your blood like every month to make sure that your liver's not basically kind of caving in. And he said, so when do you want to start? And I've basically <laughs> said, Sign me up. Yeah. and I've said, well, it does sound attractive. Um, but why don't, why don't I think about it for a little bit? And he's like, sure. And so he gave me just some painkillers. He gave me some um, ibuprofen style um, painkillers to take home because, you know, they feel bad. You're limping in, you've all these things are swollen up and they, they kind of know where this is going more than what the patient does. And so he wanted to give me something as doctors do. They want to send you out and feel like they've completed the, the loop by at least reciprocating some kind of pill or something for their money. And so I've taken some painkillers uh, that night and woken up the next day feeling amazing. And of course, I'd never taken painkillers. And so I'm like, this is it. I'm done. All I need to do is take painkillers forever. And I'm, I'm, I'm sweet. But you know, that's how naive I was, right? And so anyway, a week went by and I had to increase the dose a little bit. And after three weeks, I was on twice the dose as what I was when I started taking these painkillers but my symptoms were still significant. So I couldn't extinguish the symptoms like I was at first, just three weeks ago, with, with just the basic dose. And so then it started to concern me. And I thought, well, what would happen if I stopped taking these painkillers? I wonder, what's my default state? What, what is my non-medicated state? So I stopped taking the painkillers. And the next day I was in absolute agony. And so what had happened in the three weeks of taking those painkillers, I had done so much damage to my intestinal wall that my symptoms were now at least twice as bad as what they were before starting them. And I was not able to get it back down. I had permanently gotten worse during those three weeks from taking those painkillers. Can you explain to everyone who's listening like how that caused that damage to your gut lining? Absolutely. So now, of course, at the time I had no idea. And although it says on the box, you know, these are only to be taken short term, you should not take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for more than 10 days or 14 days. Please consult your doctor before taking these. And these drugs can cause things like gastric ulcers, et cetera, et cetera. So the warnings are all over it. And it says for only a few weeks. But, you know, as as you and your clients and, and my clients, you know, prove through their evidence of use, people are on these things for years. People take them for years because they don't really understand where they can seek other options. And so what's actually going on is really interesting. And it takes me right back to, um, if, if I may, start to work backwards a little bit and work through my explanation as to the relationship between um, the digestive system and rheumatoid. Is that good? Sounds great. Okay. So because I was trying to remember how to explain this when I was giving presentations or, you know, doing recordings online or helping people, I created an acronym for myself that I use to help me cover all aspects of this and not to, not to exclude anything. And so the acronym that I created is BLAME, right? But I've put two A's in there because it needed it and it's not quite as neat as I would like, but it's BLAME with two A's. And so 
Um, the first one relates heavily to your expertise and, and uh, the title of this podcast, which is uh, related to bacterial overgrowth. So B is bacterial overgrowth. And as I move through this acronym, I just want listeners to be aware that all of this stuff comes from the science. And if you'd like to see all these relationships between um, these factors of the digestive system and how it's supported by the scientific literature and medically published um, journal papers, just go to my website forward slash guide, G-U-I-D-E. And my website is pattersonprogram.com forward slash guide. And Rebecca will um, probably put a link to that uh, in the show notes. But so anyway, so if you want the scientific evidence and how it all is uh, interlinked, then go there and grab that guide for rheumatologists, which is what I have people pass on to their doctors. So the doctors can also <laughs> understand what's going on with the disease that they treat with the medications. So let's talk about what's going on. Bacteria. We know that a portion of people with rheumatoid arthritis have been studied to have uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, and, um, and a overgrowth of bad bacteria in their colon and also an inadequate number of healthy species of bacteria, uh, ones like acidophilus and bifidobacterium and so on. So we've got an overgrowth of bad guys, and we've got an insufficient amount of good guys to take up the real estate and crowd out the bad guys, or even to combat them and, and eliminate them and keep them under control. So we have this bacterial overgrowth. In the case of um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, we often find that that is driven by a lack of hydrochloric acid in the stomach, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, let's move on to L in blame. So L stands for leaky gut. So the underlying cause of all autoimmune conditions, in my view, based on the science and is well supported by the medical literature now with thousands of medically published papers from very highly regarded peer-reviewed leading tier journals surrounds leaky gut, a concept that is no longer sort of kept into the, the opinions of naturopaths and, and alternative therapists, but is now very mainstream in its explanation of autoimmune conditions in the medical literature. So what's going on is that we have particles that are incompletely digested from the food that we've consumed that are passing into our bloodstream that should not have entered the bloodstream in its whole state, but should have been broken down into smaller particles. So if in the case of autoimmune, where the problem um, you know, becomes most concerning is when it occurs with proteins. So we're meant to break down our proteins into the constituent amino acids. But if we have whole proteins entering our blood, then we have a dangerous state because we're not meant to have whole proteins in our blood. We're only meant to have those amino acids, which are like letters of words. So if we think of proteins as a word, let's say we have the word protein literally entering the blood, but it should have went in as P-R-O-T E-I-N. Uh, each of those letters should be floating around. And these amino acids or letters, they are innocent to the body and they can be then used and those letters can be rebuilt into other words or proteins in the body. And that's how the body rebuilds proteins. It doesn't take, you know, it doesn't literally take a protein from the food you eat and instantly put it somewhere else like a building block. It breaks it all down and reconstructs it into its own proteins. 
Okay, so what happens if we have a whole protein entering the blood? The body sends off its alarm signals and the body can treat that protein as an uh, as an antigen and attack it with antibodies. Now it becomes very, very delicate and dangerous situation if your body is sending out antibodies against proteins. Basically saying, hey, proteins are dangerous. And if this goes on long enough and if the body's ability to indistinguish those proteins from your own tissues gets distorted, then you can start to attack your own proteins somewhere in your body that look the same or similar to the proteins that are coming into your bloodstream. And so this is the concept called molecular mimicry. So the body has mistaken these proteins that could be coming in from food or they could be the proteins that are lining the bacteria that is leaking also into your bloodstream from your gut. So we have the concept of leaky gut. Okay, so that's L and the rest are shorter. That was the longest one. Uh, next we have... I really like the uh, the the way you've described that, Clint. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that, that listen to my podcast know about leaky gut, but I really like the analogy of protein being letters that it can break down and make up the same word or it can be um, different words. I think that's great. So thank you for using such a easy to remember and understand analogy. So we've done B and L and now we're moving into A. That's right. So we're moving into a. Now we've got a couple of A's as I mentioned. So the first one is uh, acid in terms of stomach acid or gastric acid. And as we mentioned earlier, we can have this bacterial overgrowth, this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and that can be really allowed or permitted by having low stomach acid. And so the studies on people with rheumatoid arthritis show that in many cases, they have low stomach acid and in some cases have no stomach acid at all. And this was a surprise to me because, you know, that was something that I didn't think I had a problem with. Recall that I had, you know, gas acid reflux and so on when I was uh, pre-diagnosed. And so I didn't think that was a problem for me. And yet, um, you know, how can I be certain? I think it's difficult to say sometimes with, with the stomach acid. But what, what's going on is that the, the stomach acid is meant to break down these proteins. And so the main purpose of the stomach acid is for protein digestion, whereas we have a lot of enzymatic activity used in the upper small intestine to help break down a lot of the plant foods and so on. But with, you know, strong protein chains, they need the hydrochloric acid. And so it's those same strong protein chains that are the ones that are getting into our bloodstream. And so we see this correlation here that, ah, if we're low on stomach acid, it leads to this bacterial overgrowth, okay, and it leads to more problematic uh, proteins in the digestive system, which can end up into the bloodstream. Okay, so the next one is A for acidosis. So Acidosis is a state in which the body consumes too many foods that leave an acidic ash after digestion. And so lemon's always a good example because lemon, as we know, is highly acidic. When we put it on our tongue, it feels acidic, tastes acidic. So why is that alkalizing? Why do people say you need to have a, you know, take alkaline drink through lemon water? 
It's because that although it tastes acidic on our tongue, after the after the meta, metabolizing process of of the mixture of your stomach juices with the lemon, it results in a compound that is alkaline after it's been burnt or digested or metabolized by your stomach juices and enzymes. And so it's not about how it goes in. It's about what happens after it interacts. And after it interacts, lemon becomes very alkalizing. And so do a lot of other, particularly plant foods. And so what we want to do is take folks who are in a state of high metabolic acidosis, which I think is most of the Western population. Let's let's be frank, because the foods are acidifying, processed foods, junk foods. We live a high stress lifestyle, and so when we take in alkalizing foods, foods that will leave in as, as an alkalizing ash in our body, um, we can reduce that acid load. We're not talking about in the blood, and we can't change the alkalinity of the blood. That needs to be regulated very, very tightly for our for our survival. We're talking about the non-blood fluids in the body, the, the water-based fluids that are not in the blood. And so studies have shown that if people with rheumatoid take uh, potassium supplementation, uh, potassium being the, the most effective way to alkalize the body, it's the most... Uh, alkaline forming mineral for the body, um, or just a whole bunch of alkalizing minerals like potassium and magnesium and sodium all together in mineral supplementation. Either way, folks with rheumatoid arthritis get symptomatic clinical improvements. And so um, that was done through supplements, and I like to go down that path with the foods, which we'll get to soon. So we're left with M and E. So the M stands for mucosal lining. Poor folks with rheumatoid arthritis uh, often have no mucosal lining. Mucosal lining is where we absorb a lot of the minerals in our body and a lot of the nutrients, and it's also where a lot of our bacteria are housed in our colon. So if we don't have a lot of mucus for a protective layer and also for those other um, factors, then we have more crap entering our bloodstream. We have not as much real estate for bacteria to live and to thrive. And we are at risk of becoming malnourished because that's where the um, uptake of our vitamins and minerals occurs. And sure enough, the studies support that people with rheumatoid arthritis are generally malnourished. And so they are low on critical vitamins and minerals. And I believe that that is in spite of, in many cases, trying to eat the highest high quality foods that they can because they just lack a fundamental component of the digestive system. And then finally, we have enzymes. And so enzymes are, of course, the little scissors that chop up our foods and break down things like proteins, like carbohydrates, and break down fats into their smaller components. In the case of fats, down to fatty acids. In the case of the carbohydrates, down to simple sugars. And of course, with the proteins, as we've talked about, down into their amino acids. And without these enzymes, our food particles remain large. And that becomes problematic. And we can intake our resource of enzymes through our food. We can eat foods that are rich in enzymes, particularly things like sprouts, like alfalfa sprouts or mung bean sprouts, are the highest sources of enzymes on the planet. And yet I certainly never ate those, nor did any of my friends growing up or into my 20s. 
Um, we're all eating things that are completely devoid of enzymes. Cooked foods, anything that's cooked has lost its, lost its enzyme activity. Anything that's a, um, uh, you know, a non-living food. And anything that's raw, an apple, a banana, you know, a, a juice that's been made fresh from fresh vegetables and fruits. All these things are rich in enzymes, but I can tell you that I was not having these things and uh, I, I feel that uh, this is a key component to being able to break down our foods so that they are easily assimilated with the body and not ending up in our bloodstream. Mm, definitely. That, uh, that acronym that you've created is really easy to, uh, to remember and understand. Thank you for putting that together for people <laughs> like myself. <laughs> awesome. Feel free to use it. So, it, yeah, it, it really does show the connection between the gut and rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm sure that many of the listeners today are, are listening along thinking, oh, wow, yeah, I tick a lot of those boxes. I know that as you've gone through uh, your acronym, I'm going, yep, well, I've got the bacterial overgrowth and, uh, you know, what else do I tick on this list? It's um, it's a little bit scary. So for anyone that is thinking, oh, my gosh, am I on the pathway to rheumatoid arthritis because I, like Rebecca and Clint, have had a lifetime use of antibiotics and I've now got all of these gut issues, I know I've got leaky gut, um, what, what can they do about it? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For anyone that is thinking, oh my gosh, am I on the pathway to rheumatoid arthritis because I, like Rebecca and Clint, have had a lifetime use of antibiotics and I've now got all of these gut issues, I know I've got leaky gut, um, what, what can they do about it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and how much time do we have? I mean, it, 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 this is such a such an in-depth topic and I'm going to maybe provide just some some principles and some handy tips, um, some things that are highly actionable so that people can go away and begin uh, doing things immediately if they like. Obviously, everything's up to up to the individual. And, um, you know, I always find that people can, if they're intimidated by some of the things that I recommend, they can implement as little or as much of it as they like. Um, I'm all about massive results. So I just want to blow people's minds, okay? Now, with that comes radical changes, okay? So um, 
our program, for example, is known at, is known within the rheumatoid arthritis community as generally being very hard, but works. And that's what I hear all the time. It's very hard. And a lot of people don't want to go that far because, um, you know, it, it often for most people means giving up some of the foods that they enjoy. I like people to exercise all the time. I have specific guidelines around supplementations that are fairly modest. Like I, I don't recommend as uh, the, the, the usual suspects. I have my own small suggestion range. Um, and I encourage people to reduce their stress levels and things, which are consistent with a lot of other of your guests, of course. Um, but let me give you some of these things or your listeners some of these things. And let's just work through this blame. How do we address this blame? If we've got these things, let's work through and what we can do. And so if we've got this bacterial overgrowth and we've got a situation where we've got too much pathogenic bacteria and not enough healthy bacteria, well, we want to feed the good guys and we want to starve out the bad guys. We want to make the bad guys uh, pretty much have nothing to eat and therefore to die out. That would be our ultimate aim. And so what I found personally originally was that the more leafy greens that I ate, the better. So this is just baby spinach. This is romaine lettuce. Anything that's green and grew and it's leafy, this seemed to do really well for me and seemed to become the backbone of a lot of my snacks and so on, just to eat and eat and eat these leafy greens. Now, the good bacteria thrive on the plant fiber and they particularly like to eat the leafy greens. Also being rich in chlorophyll, it's very alkalizing. It contains 98% of the vitamins and minerals that we need. And so these leafy greens are helping people who are malnourished. They're feeding the good gut bacteria because there's no sugar, zero sugar. They're, they're not, um, you know, enabling, um, you know, sugar-driven bacterial overgrowths to, to expand or multiply and alkalizing and just, you know, really, really pain-reducing. And so I would, I would encourage anyone to look towards increasing their simple salad intake. And I want to caution people not to go and add oils and balsamic vinegars and things on top of it. If we want to be really, if, if I have someone listening right now who has rheumatoid arthritis, I don't want to make one mistake with the advice that I'm providing. I want you to understand that you can't go and cover these, these healthy enzyme-rich leafy greens with oils. We need to set those aside and we need to just have the leafy greens on their own, on the side. Uh, if you want to put on something like a lemon juice uh, or even if you want to steam some baby spinach so that you can get them down, then do so. But we want them just in their natural raw state, ideally. So that'll be one thing. It'll be just lots and lots of additional leafy, bulky salad fiber for um for healthy digestion that'll be one tip the other and thing Clint, why hmm. why can't we add oils or vinegars to our greens what's happening if we if we add them yes and i'm glad you asked that and it's probably the most controversial thing or the thing that i have to talk about a lot with my own audience who who are going through my program is about is about fats so what's shown in the literature is this is that all dietary fat increases leaky gut. Now, that is a profound statement. 
Okay, it's not just shown in animal models on rats and mice. It's also shown in human studies. Now, that's not a problem if you don't have an autoimmune disease. Because what really is leaky gut? It's just your body allowing more energy directly into the bloodstream so that it can be usable. And it doesn't care if sometimes it throws a lot of undigested food in there. If we take a step backwards, you think about, you know, the whole metaphor that someone always gives at a speech uh, when they're talking about digestive system, they took and they get on the topic of fight and flight, this whole uh, concept whereby you've spotted an animal in front of you, you need to run and save your life, okay? So what happens is the, is the digestive system shuts down, right? All our energy goes into survival. But at that same moment, also... Your, your intestinal permeability increases. The body needs all the fuel it can get to run like hell. And so what happens is that intestinal permeability increases in the fight or flight state, and we can then take in more potential fuel. Okay, so that's what it's there for. But um, so it is a natural thing, and it's not a problem if it happens and you don't have an autoimmune disease. But if you do have an autoimmune disease, this is obviously bad because we then have these additional particles entering our bloodstream and, and, and causing us problems because we've got this cross-reactivity. So, we, so the, the dietary fat increases leaky gut. And so, again, if you want to see the studies on this, it's pattersonprogram.com forward slash guide, and you can download this and see for yourself. And so... This is also consistent with what we see with other foods that most trigger people with rheumatoid arthritis. If we look at the list and we look at the studies, what triggers most people in terms of their dietary influences? Most people are responding to all the meats, dairy products, and there's more publications on the dairy, but the, the, um, the science is just as strong on the meat. Um, and they're also well-published on things like cereal grains, like wheat, barley, oats. So that tends to be very problematic for people as well. But if we just look at the first two to begin with, what they have in common, besides you know, a lot of, lot of pro problem areas for um, uh, you know, problematic proteins, they're acidifying, hard to digest, require lots of hydrochloric acid, which may be lacking, take a long transitory time throughout the digestive system, um, uh, you know, could be um, contaminated with antibiotics in the case, all of those things apply um, for the uh, meat. And then in the case of dairy, um, highly allergenic, mucus promoting, um, also could be laden with antibiotics, um, high in fat. Now, the last one's most important, high in fat. So even lean chicken, which is only, you know, which is promoted as a low fat thing. You know, people just think of it lazily as, oh, I'm just eating some protein. That's all they think about. But it's, it's actually 30% of calories are fat, even in lean chicken, okay, without the skin, because the fat is inside the muscle cells. And so we can't eat something from an animal without having higher fat intake in our diet than what we would like if we have an autoimmune condition, because the fat is going to increase the leaky gut. Now, I can imagine a lot of people are freaking out saying, okay, what is this? What am I meant to eat? This is some crazy talk. But believe me, 
The last thing I wanted to do was to let go of meat or dairy because remember, I've always been thin. And I thought there's no way a guy who grew up on a farm in the middle of country New South Wales in Australia who ate meat all his life, who's already skinny, is going to stop eating something that A, I think contributes to my muscles and my appearance and B, seems to be part of my upbringing, who I am as a country boy, right? And so it was only because my wife kept nagging and nagging and nagging. She said, you've got to try and give up. Let's try this, try this, try dropping the meat, try dropping the, the dairy products. And because she's been vegetarian since birth. And when I first found that out, I'm like, oh, no, not one of them. I don't want to be not a vegetarian. This is going to kill me, right, when we first started dating. But um, eventually I, I succumbed and say, okay, look, I'll give it a try because I was willing to try and experiment. And sure enough, I made slow and steady improvements off both the meat and the dairy. But what's interesting is that the biggest leap forward I ever made was when I stopped putting olive oil on my salads, ever. And the olive oil oil for all of its touted health benefits from the Mediterranean diet and its claimed benefits for reduced incidences of heart attack and it's such a healthy oil in inverted commas with your essential fatty acids, your omega-3s and so on. It's just got to be taken out. If you've got rheumatoid arthritis, there is no single one food that needs to be removed from your diet quicker than oils. And this will change your listener's life. If there's someone listening now who has inflammatory arthritis and who does this, they will be improved forever. Huh. Wow, that's so interesting. And I'm sitting here going, oh, my gosh, I literally have olive oil every day. <laughs> I don't have rheumatoid arthritis at this point and, and, you know, fingers crossed it doesn't occur in me, but I'm definitely um, heading – I've gone down a, a very long pathway and I have – uh, autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. So I do need to be very careful. What's really interesting, and I'm sure this is kind of blowing the minds of some of my listeners, is that the SIBO diet in and of itself is very meat mm -hmm. heavy, In is often quite fat heavy, because for many people, they can't tolerate many vegetables or plant-based foods because they're reacting to them. The fiber content is quite high in many of these foods, which is feeding the bacterial overgrowth, which causes symptoms, which means people pull them out of their diet. And um, and I know myself when I went through my um, first treatment for SIBO, it was very meat heavy. And as an ex-vegetarian, I was a bit overwhelmed by the amount of protein I had to eat because that was what you could use to bulk you up. But um, it could, by the sounds of things, be inadvertently causing more problems, particularly when you've got autoimmune conditions, which so many of us with SIBO mm -hmm. have running concurrently. Mm -hmm, absolutely. What? So you, you touched on, you've sort of touched on this plant-based approach. I'd love to hear more about that in terms of how that works, but also how people can work towards it, particularly if they've got other conditions like SIBO at play, which uh, for people with uh, rheumatoid arthritis is often a case for them as well. Yes. And please, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm, Speaking only from A, my personal experience, and B, working with people with rheumatoid arthritis. And my 
my guidelines for them don't necessarily apply to everyone. And of course, everyone needs to take into account, you know, their own unique circumstances and to just to maybe bounce this off, you know, what they're currently doing and consider it. But what we do with people with rheumatoid works exceptionally well. And um, I want to say that virtually no one doesn't improve. So basically everyone improves of a success rate that's almost perfect um, unless someone has just changed their medications before starting. So let's say someone gets excited, as people can do, and they say, I'm about to do this Patterson program. I've seen, you know, 115 testimonials online and I want to go and do this. I'm excited. I'm going to stop my painkillers today. I'm going to reduce my methotrexate or something. And it sounds crazy, but people do that. So as long as someone isn't doing that um, prior to starting, then they should expect to have not just somewhat improvements, but significant improvements. And so what do we do? So we appreciate that the problem is significant, right? We're dealing with something that is what my one of my doctors said to me, of all diseases I would not want to get, rheumatoid arthritis would be at the top of my list. Okay, so we're dealing with something that is extremely significant. And we're dealing with something that's notoriously difficult to treat. So I've got, I'm fortunate and blessed to have some friends who I would say were colleagues who are very, very high up in the, in the plant-based doctor world here in the US where I'm currently based. So, uh, and these people just shake their head at me and say, man, you have picked the hardest condition to work with because when someone walks in, they sit down in front of me and they say, I've got rheumatoid arthritis. These doctors who've been practicing for a very long time say internally, they're like, oh no, because it's not like trying to reduce blood pressure. It's trying to reduce, you know, elevated um, cholesterol levels or obesity, which are all, you know, fairly straightforward in the plant-based world. This is something that's notoriously difficult, but here is what we do. So I get people to avoid the meat, the biggest trigger, avoid the dairy, another big trigger, and avoid these cereal grains, which is another big trigger. So what do we eat? Okay, so it took me years to work that out. I made dietary mistakes for years trying to work out myself what to eat. And so what tends to work with most people to reduce symptoms is all of these leafy greens that I talked about before. They also do celery and cucumber juice. So we just put celery and cucumber through a juicer with no lemon, nothing else, just the juice. Extremely alkalizing, rich in minerals and uh, very hydrating. Okay, which by the way, to hydrate a lot between meals also helps to lubricate the small intestine, which then allows a stimulation of the hydrochloric acid production to be successful because the body knows that it can safely release hydrochloric acid. So that's another tip. So we want to stay hydrated with that. Now, I have people eat mostly buckwheat and quinoa for the first 12 days with sweet potatoes thrown in about halfway through because they're going to need a little bit of more variety. And normally by that point, they've become accustomed to how to prepare the, uh, the two pseudo grains. And on top of that, they're uh, later then introducing some miso paste for some healthy bacteria. Um, of course, unfermented so that it's rich in, in healthy live bacteria. And then moving on from there to start testing fruits into their diet. So I want to see high potassium 
plant-based fruits entering the diet because remember earlier with the concept of acidosis to combat that the most effective mineral is the potassium so we want to be high potassium whole fruits entering the diet cantaloupe as they call it over here or rock melon is the first one also papaya and the reason papaya as well as cantaloupe which is rich in potassium papaya has the enzyme papain and that helps break down proteins and so we get to break down these proteins that are the problem entering the bloodstream and so we're using our food to increase potassium and to break down proteins and to alkalize the body and so we can um, you know, reintroduce very, very um, carefully and um, uh, what's the word? Very um, calculated way so that we can uh, address these issues in the body. And then slowly they're able to add back into the diet foods one at a time, testing uh, until we're able to, like I do today, eat complete diversity of plant-based foods. So previously I couldn't eat anything without pain and now I can eat you know, everything from left of the spectrum to right of the spectrum. So I can even eat breads and on the other spectrum eat uh, nuts and seeds and um, you know things that people consider bad from an arthritis point of view like nightshade vegetables, all of those. Uh, and so you know I don't go out and eat cheese pizzas and I don't eat um, you know, uh, processed uh, versions of soy products like, you know, fake soy meats and stuff. Um, I eat whole foods and I stick to a plant, plant world and I'm good. And that's what I've been doing now for a very long time. And my weight is the same. My weight today is the same as what it was when I was trying to go to the gym and bulk up and feed my body with as many, um, you know, uh, perceived um protein-rich foods as I could. And it's really great to hear that you are able to eat a diverse range of foods these days and also that you didn't end up becoming super, super skinny because I know that's a great concern for many people in my community with SIBO, that they're very underweight, they're very malnourished and they're, just, they're terrified that they're going to just literally fade away. Um, along with your nutrition principles, you've also got some key kind of lifestyle strategies. Are you able to talk through what what they are as well. Yes. So going along with all of these problems that people have with rheumatoid, and believe me, I went through them all, the the whole concept of feeling isolated, there's no support with autoimmune conditions. It's not like cancer, God forbid someone has it, of course, um, where you tend to get a lot of support from your family and friends and if you're lucky enough, people even do fundraisers and raise money for your treatments and so forth. And whilst no one would ever want to sort of compare one or the other um, in a way of what's better, what's worse, um, I can just say that whether you have an autoimmune, you just actually shut down and people don't understand what it's like. And, and you have essentially like a sense of isolated depression and it's, um, it's just a horrible thing. So we want to address that and we want to try and um, have a lifestyle set up where we can feel that we're getting on top of that. Um, we also got to keep the body moving because the studies show that uh, folks who move more with rheumatoid arthritis have better long-term outcomes. And I encourage people not just to do um, uh, cardiovascular exercise, which is good for the little joints, which need that extra sort of uh, 
power in the in the in the pumping of the blood to clear them out, uh, but also targeted joint specific exercises. And so I have um, guidelines around this inside our materials where people, if they have it in their elbows or in their knees or in their shoulders, which are the three big joints in the body that get affected, that we have ways of clearing those out uh, and reducing the inflammation that gets into the ligaments. Because the, once the body has inflamed ligaments, then uh, it makes additional um, uh, pain occur at that area. So it's surprising how much of the pain is actually coming from the inflamed ligaments, which can be effectively reduced because they are just soft tissue. So we've got those things. Um, and so um, we want to reduce the stress in our life. We want to exercise like we're a crazy person, like we're training for the Olympics. And even if that means each day that we can just move our neck left and right just a little bit because we're in a wheelchair, wherever we're at, we need to do as much exercise that our body is capable of. And then the next day, try and beat it by 1%. And if we can do that every day, then in six months, 12 months, you know, we'll be moving our whole upper body and shoulders if we're in the wheelchair. We might even be able to do some arm exercises and move our torso around. And then, you know, we take it from there. And if people are in a more able position to start with, then they go from being, you know, going on a walk maybe to aqua therapy to then ultimately I want people into a class called Bikram yoga. It's a hot yoga, 90 minutes. It's the same postures every day. It was created purposefully to reduce knee problems and to fix ruined knees and it certainly did that for mine and has done for so many of my clients and so it is the number one exercise that people should be doing if they have inflammatory arthritis and then finally the supplements we talked about that I just want to address those areas that we talked about in the BLAME acronym. We want to increase potassium with some potassium supplementation. Um, we know that people have low hydrochloric acid. We could try some betaine hydrochloride supplementation and see if whether that that works. Um, we want to uh, minimize some of the pain. We can do so with some curcumin or some uh, turmeric and black pepper. Um, these things can help some people to reduce pain enough for them to substitute their non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which I don't know if I fully answered your question earlier at the, at the very start of our chat, cause more leaky gut. So we want to be getting off those drugs because they are they're notorious for intestinal permeability. And so to close that loop way back at the start when you asked me about why did I worsen after three weeks on those painkillers is because that dramatically increased my leaky gut, which was then not able to be uh, restored, um, certainly for a very long time. And so they those drugs, when I work with people from a strategy point of view, are one of the first that we try and substitute and get them off. And so in terms to finish off on the supplements, just a couple more that are worth trying for most people. Um, certainly, we want to be taking a vitamin D and get our vitamin D levels up if we haven't got adequate sunshine. And if people go strictly plant-based, um, then a vitamin B12, um, which is actually a bacteria, uh, vitamin B12, which we used to get when we ate close to the ground and ate locally and so forth, uh, which is in the soil. So if we were to um, wind back the clock just a few hundred years uh, and we had a little plot of land out the back and we used to pull up a carrot and wash the carrot and eat the carrot, we'd be getting our B12. But now that we eat in a hyper-processed society where food travels a long way, um, all of our all of the soil bacteria is lost. And so um, a B12 is recommended. 
if uh, if folks aren't eating uh, animals who get their B12 uh, through the same source through the through eating close to the ground, and so um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of it. And then we just work on rolling out strategies. The strategy is crucial because sometimes these medications, like the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or if people are on low-dose antibiotics, or if people are taking prednisone, all of these things work directly against the gut healing. And so I work with people and lay out sort of case studies for people. So if they're in that situation, then this is what's worked for others. Well, this is what I'd recommend you do in consultation with your rheumatologist so that we're not trying to fight a fight with two hands tied behind our back. Because when we're on these drugs that directly impact the gut health negatively, then, I mean, we've got a big enough battle to fight without having these damn drugs working against us. And so whilst we want to be sensible with our medication treatment, we also want to make sure that we're on the right ones and we can work with the rheumatologist um, to, to make sure that the medications we're on are neutral for our digestive system. I'd also like your um, thoughts or uh, just commentary around the mindset piece, um, dealing with a chronic and quite debilitating autoimmune condition Um how do you work with yourself and your clients around just picking yourself up on those days when you think, I just can't keep going? I feel so rotten. Is it ever going to get better? I can't imagine a future where I feel great again. Um, and this is a feeling that many SIBO people have themselves. How do you get through that phase? Remember, I have the physics background, right? And so I'm all about cause and effect. So the first thing is to understand that something has caused this and that you are not a victim. You're not a victim of circumstance that is beyond your control. There is an element of self-responsibility that needs to at first be put in place to acknowledge that lifestyle to a large extent has caused this. You and I share the background of the antibiotics and so it really wasn't a lifestyle. It was a bad decision or it was a decision that we maybe should have got second opinions about or so on. So my point is there needs to, first of all, acknowledge that no one else caused this. We have to take responsibility. Now, that responsibility extends not just to acknowledging that we were responsible for its cause but it's our responsibility to fix the freaking thing, okay? Now, that requires massive effort, massive effort and determination. And so this massive effort and determination would drive me to create a list of affirmations for the hard days, okay? And the hard days, believe me, outnumbered the good days by about a thousand to one. And so the affirmations that I wrote on a piece of paper that I have in our materials for people and they just basically fill in the blanks, they write them all down on the blank lines themselves, is about how we can use empowering language to help us when the going gets tough. And I would use affirmations like, I'm pain-free, drug-free, and full of massive energy. And I would say it, I wake up pain-free, drug-free, full of massive energy, pain-free, drug-free, full of massive energy, pain-free, drug-free, full of massive energy. And I would say it with enthusiasm. And I would say other things like, every day I'm getting more stronger and feel healthier. Or I would say things like, 
Um, my body feels vibrant and is accepting all efforts that I put forward to help me get well. And I would just come up with these things and write them down and then put them on my fridge. And it was on the fridge for years, this list of affirmations. And I would say them as often as I could because we can't, we can't tune out the monkey mind, but we can try and replace its presence by substituting other phrases that are more empowering. So that's one thing. The other thing, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, we want to take massive action. I say to people with rheumatoid, if your joints hurt, it's like your house is on fire. And if you're watching your house on fire, do you sit back and let it burn or do you put the damn thing out? You not only put it out, you put it out as quickly as possible. Your house is on fire. Put the thing out as quickly as possible with the most effective tools you have. With rheumatoid, the most effective tools are normally to eat a basic meal, like I talked before, so we can, what I call, empty the bathwater of pain. That means just let's clear whatever inflammation is in the body with a simple meal that's healing, alkalizing, easy to digest, and then let's exercise the heck out of it, right? Let's go to a Bikram yoga class. Let's jump on the stationary bike. Let's go for a swim. If we do one of those things and eat a simple meal, we've taken massive action and we have intervened so as to uh, alleviate the symptoms. So these are some of the things. I actually have a eight-point checklist that I give at keynote presentations and it's online somewhere, and I can't remember the name of the presentation, but I go through these eight points online. Uh, I gave it a keynote presentation that I've got on YouTube. And if I could, I just can't quite think of the name of the title of that video, but I go through the eight mindset strategies that I used uh, throughout my whole journey to overcome um, my problems. And uh, I just can't remember the name of that video. Well, uh put the link of that in the show notes so people can grab that. Um, Just before we finish, I'd like to talk about setbacks. Have you had them with your journey to recovering your health? Um, And how do you work with your clients around setbacks? It's so common for people with SIBO to have setbacks. Two thirds of the SIBO population will relapse. So it's a chronic condition that for many people is not curable at this point in time uh, because there's so many factors at play that cause this bacterial overgrowth that aren't being addressed, um, which is why they keep relapsing. Uh, How do you work with people around their relapses? Yep. So there are so many parallels. Relapses and setbacks. Yes, (laughs) there are so many parallels. And if I had a rheumatoid client that also knew that they had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, we would have the same goal over the first four days, which I, which I ask everyone to set as their goal, which is that we want to experience four groundhog days. I want everyone to eat the exact same thing at the exact same time, take the exact same supplements, exercise in the exact same way, and have the same exact travel times to work or whatever parameters you can control because what the first milestone is is to exhibit control over the symptoms. If we can do four days and do exactly the same thing and the symptoms are exactly the same, then we've exhibited power over the condition. The future then 
is to exhibit the same degree of power for much longer periods of time, like weeks and months, on a much more expanded diet so that it becomes normal, in inverted commas, and having more variety in your life. And so we're, we, we, we do a small sample of exhibiting control, and then we want to roll that out and expand upon that with time. Now, when we get a setback, what we need to do is we need to try and identify the cause of the setback against a platform that isn't changing. And that's why I ask people to only change one thing at a time when they're reintroducing foods back into their diet. Because I want to only have people do this once. I don't want people to be trying to run this battle for the rest of their lives. I have people go through a hard process once and then they know their body. They know how to uh, address problems when they occur, which is to go back to the basic foods for one day, go and exercise and then reestablish control for four days and then get back exactly where you were up to, whether that be three months into the program, four, six, or even more. So if people are a year and they've been, they've done tremendously and they go out at night and they go to have a meal that I might recommend like an Indian restaurant where you can get a nice taka dal, beautiful lentils with wonderful spices and rice. And they've eaten it, but they've, they, there's oil in the meal and they've had a few symptoms the next day. They know the process. So how do we deal with the setback? We go back onto the basic foods immediately. We go and exercise to clean out the lymphatic system, something I haven't really gone into a lot, but we have lymphatic congestion and stuff just doesn't get cleared from the lymphatic system. If we're not moving every day, then that, that waste does not get eliminated. So we need to eliminate the waste, put in good fuel, and we'll be reset. And that restores and gets everything back on track. And that is the... Um, that is how we, we get over these setbacks. We quickly regain control and confidence resumes very quickly. I think it's a really important point you make and something that I work with my own clients around and that when we are in the reintroduction of food phase, it's not to go out and go crazy and eat everything in sight, but it's to be very methodical and um, and take your time with it. And I know that can be really frustrating for people because they're just like, just give me all the food. I want to eat all the food. Um, but I say to them, if you go and eat all the food, how do you know which one is the thing that's causing the, the flare? Whereas if you are very slow and methodical and you reintroduce the foods carefully, then you can pinpoint exactly what has caused that challenge. Um, and it might feel like it's taking forever, but I always say in the whole scheme of your life, let's say you live to 85 or 90, I'm, I'm gunning for over 100, um, is a, a couple of months where you're reintroducing food really that long in the scheme of things? It's not. So <laughs> let's be slow and methodical now so that you can have a much healthier later life um, by doing the work today. Yeah, so true. And that's a, that's their fundamental principles of scientific experimentation is only change one thing at a time because if you make two changes if you for in, in back to my example if you um, you exercise three days in a row and on the fourth day you don't exercise and you add a new food right on the next day how do you know if your symptoms are worse because you didn't exercise or because of the food. And so everything matters. And so um, what you said is exactly right. It's a slow process and one that 
uh, can feel frustrating, but you get it right once and then you're in control and you only have to do it the once. Exactly. Clint, it's been great chatting to you today on the Healthy Gut Podcast. I'm sure there are many listeners that are very eager to learn more about what you do and to get in touch. How can people make contact with you? The easiest way is just to jump on our mailing list. Um, We have a very educational mailing list that's free um, and that's at www.pattersonprogram.com. My my name Patterson's a bit unusual in its spelling. It's P-A-D-D as in dog, I-S-O-N. And so on that homepage, when people land there, they'll be invited to jump on the mailing list. And from there, they can watch my TED talk. They can see other presentations that I've given um, and also get a, a, a much more um, variety of, uh, of information um, on top of what we've talked about today. Um, and yeah, just pick up, you know, some daily tips and so on. So um, that's a good thing to do. And if anyone wants to cross-reference my uh, my comments about the relationship between the digestive system and rheumatoid arthritis, um, go to pattersonprogram.com forward slash guide and download the guide for rheumatologists, which uh, has all of the um, the scientific references there for people to review. Wonderful. And all those links are in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on the Healthy Gut Podcast. I know I have learned an enormous amount about rheumatoid arthritis and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was Clint Patterson. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to get the show notes from today's show, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash RA. And RA stands for rheumatoid arthritis. And don't forget, guys, if you would like to get the full transcription from today's episode or any of the shows in season two, all you need to do is sign up for free as a member of The Healthy Gut podcast. Just head to today's show notes page, thehealthygut.co forward slash RA, and you can sign up there. And I absolutely love hearing your feedback. Don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes. If you found this episode helpful, let us know about it. And it also helps others know that this is the right podcast for them. And come say hi on all our social media platforms. I just love connecting with you there. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. You can find us under The Healthy Gut. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 